On May the 19th, 2022, at the Charleston Festival in East Sussex, I finally got to do something I'd wanted to do for over 40 years, but never imagined I would get the chance to. And that was to tell Norman Scott, I always believed you were telling the truth about what happened. Always. What happened, as has been well documented in books and TV programmes, was his affair with Jeremy Thorpe, who then became Liberal Party leader, and the unravelling of that relationship and the ensuing plots to kill Scott, which resulted in the infamous Old Bailey trial of 1979, at which Thorpe and his three co-defendants, George Deakin, John Lemagurier and David Holmes were found not guilty of conspiracy to murder. Since 1978, I have been collecting newspaper and magazine cuttings about a wide range of subjects which garnered my interest, and especially where they were relevant to aspects of my life. I don't think it was any coincidence that 1978 was also the year in which I came out as gay, and so any news story that involved gay people caught my particular attention. And so it was that the committal trial of Jeremy Thorpe and the three other men, which began in November 1978, were the subject of some of the very first cuttings in my collection, and I still had them, faded and yellowing though they be. It was obvious to me, even then, that deep-rooted homophobia, in society, in politics and in the media, was at the core of this case. But just as central, though less written about or discussed, was the question of class the overwhelming bias shown towards a clique that spread throughout the educational, political, social and legal branches of the establishment, and the public pillioring of perennial underachievers, whose backgrounds were sketchy and troubled. Back in December 1978, Norman Scott, giving evidence at the committal proceedings, said he felt slightly out of his class when he went to Thorpe's mother's house the night their physical relationship began in 1961. He claimed that Thorpe wanted to introduce him to his friends as an orphan because he was not of sufficient breeding to be introduced to Thorpe's friends at, for example, the Reform Club. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it was obvious to me, and apparently many others, that despite a concerted and multifaceted attempt to smear and discredit Scott, while covering up the nefarious doings of a popular political establishment figure, only one man was telling the truth, before, during and after the various legal proceedings. And it wasn't any of the defendants. Especially the Right Honourable John Jeremy Thorpe QC MP, Privy Councillor. So let's take a closer look at this supposed pillar of the political community. The author Thomas Grant once observed, Jeremy Thorpe was a child of the establishment, (laughs) and then some the son and grandson of Conservative MPs, prep school, then Eton, and then Oxford, where he became president of the Oxford Union, Inner Temple barrister, TV journalist, before becoming a Liberal MP in 1959. 
combined with an excess of self-confidence and entitlement, Thorpe was going to take some stopping. However, not every part of the establishment was enamoured of the bumptious Thorpe. William Rees-Mogg, an Oxford contemporary, said, I remember having a conversation with some people when we decided that Jeremy behaved in a way at Oxford which left the impression that he couldn't be trusted. And another Oxford contemporary said, He had the reputation amongst his friends of being a crook, a twister, who would do the dirty on you. Everyone agreed that his career would end in a smash-up. As Thorpe would let nothing stand in the way of becoming Oxford Union President, so he would let nothing stand in the way of becoming Prime Minister and eventually to the House of Lords. Which makes his decision to pursue this ambition within the Liberal Party somewhat baffling. However, as the 60s progressed, it appeared more likely that minority governments might become the norm, especially after the Liberal Party's extraordinary and unexpected by-election victory in Orpington in March 1962, when Eric Lubbock overturned a Conservative majority of nearly 15,000. So it was not beyond the realms of fantasy to see that a successful, charismatic, media-savvy Liberal Party leader holding the balance of power could end up being given a major cabinet post in a Labour minority government. And from there... Of course, the problem for establishment figures and their ambitions is the way the pesky public and the electorate won't always do what we are supposed to, as far as they are concerned. And that's what happened in the 1970 general election, when the Conservatives secured a 30-seat majority and the Liberals lost seven of its 13 seats. But by that time, Thought's leadership was in a different type of crisis. To paraphrase the old proverb, for want of a national insurance card, a political party leadership was lost. The relationship between Thorpe and Norman Scott had begun nearly a decade earlier, after a brief meeting at the West Country Stables where Scott was working as a groom. After he left that job and suffered some mental health problems, Scott travelled to London to seek out that nice Mr Thorpe, who had offered to help him if he were ever in any difficulties. Now, at that time, the main difficulty was that Scott had left his previous employer without his national insurance card which at that time was essential for obtaining regular work and access to social and unemployment benefits. Employers were expected to buy the relevant national insurance stamps at the post office and physically attach them to contribution cards on behalf of their employees. I know, archaic. In 1962, Thorpe had contacted the Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance and got them to send him a replacement card for Scott. Unfortunately, for reasons which were never made clear, he kept this card and then failed to pay for any stamps for it, even though technically he was now Scott's employer. This left Scott unable to claim any of the state benefits he was entitled to. Add to this the fact that Thorpe's attraction to Scott was on the wane and he was seeking to extricate himself from the relationship and you have one very tangled web. 
and that's when the first of many cover-ups took place, courtesy of the police. <gasps> By the autumn of 1962, Scott wanted to end his relationship with Thorpe. But seeing control of the potentially explosive situation start to slip away, Thorpe ludicrously threatened Scott with his connections to the Director of Public Prosecutions. In December that year, an increasingly depressed and despondent Scott, then living in London, told a friend he was considering killing Thorpe and then taking his own life. Understandably concerned, the friend went to the local police. Scott then gave them a detailed statement producing letters to prove his relationship with Thorpe. And incredibly, despite the fact that homosexual relationships were then illegal, the police took no further action. Although a report about the incident was added to Thorpe's MI5 file that it keeps on all MPs. This jacket was rapidly filling up. In 1960, when Anthony Armstrong Jones considered having his Eton contemporary Thorpe as best man at his wedding to Princess Margaret... Thorpe was vetted by MI5, and their checks led to indications that Thorpe was gay, and his participation in this royal ceremony was vetoed. The problems regarding the national insurance card exacerbated when Scott got married, and he and his pregnant wife were unable to claim the full benefit entitlement. And by that time, Thorpe's fellow MP Peter Bessel had entered the fray. To keep the tinderbox situation under control, Bessel had taken it upon himself to pay Scott retainers, mostly £5 a week, supposedly in lieu of benefits. Bessel wrote to Scott on August 27th, 1969, regarding the insurance card issue and told him, I have spoken to Jeremy Thorpe and put him in the picture regarding the present position. In fact, it was highly unlikely that he did any such thing. But the significance of this reference is that it directly links Scott and Thorpe in writing by a third party. Now, if, as Thorpe claimed, he did not have a close relationship with Scott, why would Bessel need to keep him informed? This retainer arrangement continued for some time until Thorpe called Bessel to Eva's office at the Commons and, according to Bessel, told him, We've got to get rid of him. It's no worse than shooting a sick dog. Charming, eh? However, in 1969, when Thorpe heard Scott had married, this idea of eliminating him receded. And when Scott's marriage ended in divorce in 1970, Bessel managed to keep Thorpe's name out of court and even got Thorpe to anonymously pay Scott's legal costs. But the ice Thorpe had been skating on for more than a decade was becoming wafer thin. In 1971, Scott's friend, Gwen Parry Jones, appalled by what he had told her about Thorpe's behaviour, contacted her Liberal MP, Emlyn Hooson, asking if he would meet with Scott to discuss the situation. Cue cover-up number two, this time within the higher echelons of the Liberal Party. <gasps> wow! In 1971, Norman Scott had a meeting with David Steele, then the Liberal Party's chief whip, to discuss the behaviour of a Liberal colleague. Now, initially, it was assumed it was Peter Bessel, who was known to have a <clears throat> colourful private life, and was shocked when it transpired it was Thorpe. To back up his claims, Scott showed 
the letters written to him by Peter Bessel, including the one that referred specifically to Thorpe, proving that Bessel had been paying Scott retainers. Emlyn Hooson had originally dismissed Scott's claim as that of a madman and a liar, but he became more convinced that Thorpe was the liar. But a second meeting between Scott, Hooson, Steele and Lord Byers, Liberal leader in the Lords, on June the 9th, 1971, ended with no reproachment when Byers launched a vicious verbal attack on Scott, who angrily left the meeting. However, Hooson believed there was more to Scott's claims and continued to try and investigate. At which point, Thorpe wrote to the Home Secretary, Reginald Maudling, saying that he would like write a letter to Lord Byers, which would then be shown to Hooson, stating that he should cease and desist his investigations, and asking would Maudling also write a note to Byers to this effect. These letters were duly written and shown to Byers and Hooson, and that was that. However, it wasn't long before more letters emerged, which culminated in cover-up number three, this time courtesy of a newspaper baron. In the next episode, find out how the cover-ups just kept continuing.